welcome to The Well Podcast, where we post the audio messages for our Sunday sermons. For more information about us and how to get further connected, feel free to visit our website at thewellaustin.com. Good morning. How's it going? Uh, my name is Dean. Uh, I am a covenant member at The Well, and I serve on the greeting team, and I currently go to the Breaker and Domain CGs. All right, so we will be reading uh, Ezra 1, uh, 1 through 11 today. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. The God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers of houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God has stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shishbazzar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Shishbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. All right. What's up, church family? How are we? Man, I'm ready to continue in worship this morning. I hope that you were encouraged so far. I, I felt um, just the Spirit's present of, presence amongst us. And so it's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I love this church family so much. You have no idea. Um, sometimes I tell my kids that. It's like, I love you so much. You have no idea. Almost like aggressive. It's like, chill, bro. You're all right. Okay. Um, but so many of you mean so much to me and to my family in so many different ways. And so uh, I'm just excited to be here this morning to be a part of what God is doing and I'm um, expectant for God to move this morning. And so today we're beginning a new series in the book of Ezra. Uh, and unlike the last series, we do not need to caveat to begin each sermon and Yusuf won't blush when he's reading the scriptures anymore. Amen. So scripture readers, rest easy. Okay, you won't be reading awkward text. You'll just be reading a lot of awkward names now. All right. Uh, but I'm excited to uh, journey throughout this series in general, because as I mentioned last week, uh, this will function in a lot of ways like a vision series for us as a church. Uh, kind of where we've been, uh, what we feel like God is doing right now, where we feel like he's going, the fact that we're all in this together and how what we're doing here genuinely matters. And so I'm excited to dive into this together. Um, Ezra is a strange book for many, frankly, because there aren't really many sermon series that venture in this direction unless someone's trying to raise money for a building, 
which we ain't doing this series. Rest easy, all right? Um, but it also kind of seems like this strange, random book in the middle of our Old Testament Bibles. And uh, the history, though, is really fascinating, but I find that many are kind of unfamiliar with it uh, at large. And so in order to get some depth and some understanding into this series in general, I think understanding the context that we're entering into is really helpful. Um, I'm not going to lay out everything this week because as we build throughout this series, we're going to build in the midst of some of this history. But I do want to start us off with a pretty strong foundation and cover a lot of ground today so we can set up our series at large. Uh, also, your CG shepherds have some good resources, even some good videos that talk about Ezra and where we're at in church history. And so ask them for that. They can give that to you. Okay. Um, this book is actually the last book in the original setup of the Old Testament. And so chronologically, this is the final scroll in the Hebrew Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, which was originally just one scroll, we in English split it up into two books, but it tells of this story of the Israelites coming back into the promised land after being exiled into Babylon. And so this return from exile would reestablish them as a nation and ultimately bring forth the Messiah, Jesus. Once again, chronologically, this goes Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Matthew, okay, like New Testament. And so that by itself is important for us as we move forward. The Jews at this point in the story had been in captivity for 70 years because of their sin, their rebellion, and their rejection of God. They had neglected to follow God's law, and they therefore had consequence to pay. And so God sent them into exile. However, God would ultimately, though just and though hold true to his word about the, dis, uh, the punishments for disobedience, God is also a gracious God who fulfills his covenant and will ultimately lead people back into his presence as they seek him with their whole hearts. And so that's what this book is, is God is beginning to do this restoring work, bringing the nation back after this captivity. Uh, let me tell you where we're going with that in context right up front, and then we'll dive into chapter one. But in several ways, we feel like uh, the well has been in a sort of Babylon itself in the past couple of years. Uh, we've not been on the east side where we desired to be or downtown. We've had tons of changes on our team or in our church. There's been a lot of chaos. And, and this, even last year, we told you would be a hard year for our church and for many of us, but a year that we felt like God was telling us to endure. Obviously, we're coming off of pandemic, off of our own personal problems, bringing that in corporately as well. And we said individually and as a church that we would be exhausted yet pursuing. If you were with us during our Gideon series, that was the key phrase that we took out of that context. What we also said was that we feel like we would be replanting the well, that God was calling us to replant our church. And we genuinely feel like this replanting process is actually pretty much over. And God is actually now leading us to reestablish or to rebuild, to lay down the foundations again, because he is going to be doing an aggressively beautiful work in and through 
through this church family, in us as individuals, and collectively as a body. And we think that Ezra really spells out the beauty of what we feel like we're about to be walking in as a body. Uh, It also gives us some warnings about some pitfalls that we need to avoid when you are in the rebuilding process. And so there's kind of a parallel path between ancient Israel and us today, we feel. And so I think for many of us individually, like as you personalize this, that God is going to be bringing about some restoration, but I also think that that is true as we do this collectively as well, that even as God individually restores a lot in our life that will feed life into the restoration process in our church, I believe that many of you can actually sense and feel that. And while there may still be seasons of hardship, that it seems like this Joel 2 type of restoring what the locust has stolen is happening in our life. And so I would humbly at the start of this series, invite you to like be a part of what God is doing in this church body, even in this series, that just like Israel's rebuilding, only through the sacrifices of many will God truly be exalted. And so that's sort of where we're going throughout this series. Once again, we'll flesh that out more as we continue, but at least you know what we're hoping for from the beginning. Um, even at worship night this Sunday, if y'all were there, like I felt glimmers of that, y'all like glimmers of the restoration of God. So I'm excited for what is to come. So journey with us throughout this series. Cool? Bet. All right. Ezra chapter one, verse one. Uh, This scroll opens up with this beautiful, but also kind of this hidden promise of God. Notice right away, this foreign king begins to do some pretty uh, extraordinary things that are honestly shocking for the reader if you actually allow your mind to engage and to think about it. But it was to fulfill the word of the Lord that Jeremiah had promised. What is this saying? Well, context, about 70 years before this date, Jeremiah, the prophets, one of the exiles that was taken out of Israel and placed in Babylon, prophesied that God would keep Israel captive for 70 years, but then he would release them. In fact, there are several prophecies that are spoken about that directly. Let me read a couple of them for you. Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 12. It says, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquities, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, it says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah wasn't the only prophet that prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. It says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. The wild thing is that Isaiah penned those words almost 200 years before they actually came to fruition. And so Persia wasn't even a known powerful empire, much less was a man named Cyrus even born when Isaiah was writing those letters. And so if you have a hard time believing in the authority of the Bible, there are examples all over of God's active presence on this earth and of the trustworthiness of his word. This is actually the first point that we see in Ezra chapter one, verse one, part A, is that God is faithful to his word. The beginning of Ezra 1 is showing us that God promised to do what he said he was going to do. 
Do you know the promises of God that are found in this book, beloved? Like, like, because if you do, then you can take heart that what he says about you or what he says about creation, that it will come to pass because God is faithful to his word. Like, can I give you a practical example of even what we want to do as a church body? How, how we can move with confidence towards something as a church body with this idea that God is faithful to his word. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says this about the end times. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. When God says that the nations are going to be present, every one of them, guess what that word every means in the Greek language? Every, all, each, right? Like, and so we want to be intentional as a church to plant churches internationally because we see the promise of God and we know that even if the situation looks bleak, like you're in captivity to a foreign ruler, that God can still move even through that pagan king to bring his word to pass and so we can trust it. And so we want to move to that end. We, we multiply towards that end to see the nations present because God is faithful to his word. Do you rehearse the promises of God over your life, family of God, to find comfort or to walk in your calling or to maintain conviction and, and hope, knowing that God's word will come to pass no matter what wrench seems to be thrown into the plans of God? Do you rehearse the promises of God? You see, at this point in Israel's history, it doesn't even look like a promised messianic seed would come. But one thing that I've learned about God and that I know you know about God if you've been walking with him for some time is that he tends to act most magnificently when you least expect it. That's part of the reason why I'm excited for our body, okay? I'm moving way too slow. We on verse 1a, all right? Uh, let's pick it up or we're going to be here until Jesus does return, okay? And so the Lord stirred Cyrus's spirit, the text says, which we'll come back to in a moment. But he makes this proclamation and then he puts it into writing that people should go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Now quickly here, because it'll bring depth to a point we're going to make in a moment, but recognize that while Cyrus likely had great respect for God, he didn't actually seem to believe in Yahweh, at least not as the only God or the supreme God. Notice things like in verse two, how he calls them his God or the God in Jerusalem, sort of saying that he's not the God in Persia. It's interesting that at the beginning of the reestablishing of a nation, God did his most magnificent work through a pagan foreign king. Point being that this pagan king recognizes who the Lord is and that what he has been given does indeed belong to the Lord, but doesn't actually worship him as God. And if God would allow someone who doesn't even fully know him as God to do so much for the kingdom of God, then what about those of us who actually know and trust him? 
Like Cyrus doesn't even follow the Lord, yet there's so much fruit in Cyrus's life apart from the Holy Spirit, just God stirring up Cyrus's spirit. How much more kingdom dominion can be taken by the redeemed saints who love and follow Jesus, who have our spirits submitted to the Lord and the Holy Spirit of the Lord dwelling inside of us, how much more can we do, saints? Right? Like, like God sort of controls this king to stir up his spirit, to move on God's behalf. But God invites us as his ambassadors, as his representatives, as princes and princesses of a coming kingdom. God invites you to partake in the building, not just of a city called Jerusalem so that the Messiah would end up coming, but of a kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven until that Messiah returns. You're invited in family. And because you have the spirit of God, you can do things for the kingdom of God. Man, if this idea doesn't get you excited, put a pin in that because that's where we're going today. I hope to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But this idea that you are building up the coming of an already kingdom, like a kingdom that will indeed come. God is faithful to his word. God promised he would return, meaning that is going to happen, meaning you are invited in to build up his coming kingdom. This is good news. Cyrus knows that God is calling him to rebuild the city. And then what he does is he invites anybody who desires to join this with him to partake in this rebuilding process which is wild for a foreign king to let a bunch of Israelites from their uh, different countries and go back into their community to rebuild a kingdom that had once destroyed the kingdoms around it. That's a wild idea, all right? It'll get even more wild in a second. But in verse five, there are these people who God also stirs up their spirit to go back and to be a part of this work. In fact, it's really clear throughout this that some people felt stirred by God almost outside of their will. Others just go willingly, almost as an act of faith, to be a part of the work of God. Uh, I'm just going to say this here, and we'll come back to it later in the series. But I genuinely hope that many of you feel stirred in your spirit to help rebuild or reestablish the well in some really cool ways. Because I genuinely believe that the local church is God's means of bringing redemption to this earth. More on this later. So the king let people kind of go back if they felt led, which is crazy. But then something even crazier happens. King Cyrus brings out all this gold and silver and bronze that have been taken by Babylon and gives it back to Israel to allow them to rebuild the temple. Yo, what? <laughs> right? Like, like if you ain't catching this, okay, conquering kings don't give up their treasure. Like this passage actually reminds us to leave room in our hearts to be surprised by the extraordinary movement of God. Are you still willing to be shocked by God? Like cancer doesn't lose its grip, but what if it does? Or sin and death, when it takes hold, it destroys even in your family. But what if God is actually still going to save that person you've been praying for? Do you leave room in your heart to be surprised by God? Because kings don't do this, yet here he is, moved willingly, freely. God wants to move in similar ways, family. I would say in even more powerful ways than what we see in this story, what if God surprises you? 
Sometimes the natural course of this world, it will take its toll. Yes, that's where lament comes in. We talked about that a few series ago. But sometimes heaven meets earth in your life. Leave room to be in awe at God's wonder and at his movement. So this king, he gives up all of this valuable, valuable worth. And then Israel begins on its way back home. That's where chapter or verse 11 ends. Now, I want to do this. There's a bunch of application points I want to take from this story at large, okay? Uh, the first one I want us to look at is, uh, it's interesting, not just what God is calling these people to do, but particularly who he is calling and when he is calling them. There's a word early in this story that is pivotal for this story, and I want to make this point before moving to any of the other ones. Cyrus calls these Israelites survivors in verse 4. I'm a survivor, I'm not going to give up, right? And so for the Israelites living in a foreign land, not only did they not belong in that land because they were immigrants in that nation or refugees in a lot of ways, but they were survivors indicating that they have been through some mess, y'all. You would think that God would call out some warriors to win back the land of Israel, but he uses some survivors, those who seem lowly, those who should not be a type of people that would bring forth the Messiah family. The same thing is true of us. God desires to use those who would seem out of place to be used despite their hardship or despite their brokenness so that God, come on y'all, like some of y'all, because you're immigrants, literally, or because you've been oppressed, or because you've been counted out by society, or because you are brand new to the faith, or because you feel like you have failed in the past, or because you don't have the personality type that you think is a personality type that will change the world. You feel like you don't have what it takes to build the kingdom of God. That is a lie from Satan that you need to reject. If you are a Christian, you have been blood-bought purchased by the God of the armies of all of heaven. In fact, it is often through our brokenness that God enters into the cracks of our vessels, often brings healing in that brokenness, and then uses that very brokenness to make much of his beautiful name. Like, I just feel like saying this here. Some of you have disqualified yourself, and God has not disqualified you. In fact, the Lord may be calling you and you're a, a willing to let some weakness of the flesh tell you that you're not worthy to be used by God as if a weakness of your flesh is stronger than the power and grace of God. Family of God, you have not been disqualified by God. I pray even as I'm saying this, you would feel a stirring in your spirit where the spirit is inviting you to come take part in the kingdom of God that you are a part of the kingdom that is to come. God does his biggest work of redemption throughout all of history right in the midst of death. The cross of Christ is evidence of that, meaning he can use you even if you're just a survivor. God may be preparing your hands for battle to build the kingdom. I hope that was a word for somebody this morning. God not just can use survivors, he often uses vessels of survivors. I don't even know where I'm at my notes. I almost changed my whole sermon, y'all. Okay, 
uh, second thing that we see in this text. God uses survivors, right? But God doesn't just call us to work to build his kingdom and then leave us alone, right? Like whatever he calls us to do, God also supplies us with what we need to be able to do that work. His spirit being the main evidence in our lives today. So when he calls you to lead your family, or when he calls you to serve in a certain ministry or to give even though you're broke, God supplies you with whatever he's calling you to do. At times, he just desires to also stretch your faith in the process. Notice, God kept all of these really valuable things intact in the midst of the exile. In fact, if you know the book of Daniel, you know Nebuchadnezzar was mockingly using these vessels and God came and just killed that man. And God kept all of these vessels intact and now is using them along with this king to supply Israel with what they need. And so part one is God supplies what he calls us to do. But part two, there's also these free will efforts on our end to partner with God to accomplish the mission of God. Uh, Stay with me. Notice some of the reasons why I say this. Verse five, there's this call for the leaders to rebuild, but then everyone else can join in as well. Everyone who felt stirred in their spirit to join or to give, stirred to go back to Israel, as we'll see next week, they got to participate in this as well. Though God clearly aroused some of the spirits, many others, they just did whatever they desired. And there was great reward in joining what God was doing to call the people back to build a nation to bring forth the Messiah. God supplies, but also allows our participation in what he's supplying some people to do as well. You get to choose if you're going to join in. However, this is where the challenge comes in though. Because we know that throughout the rest of the story of Ezra and even looking back in church history, that while the offering was there to go back to Israel to do the work of the Lord that was initiated through Cyrus and prophesied by Jeremiah, that not everyone, in fact, a majority of the people, they did not go back. They didn't participate in the mission of God. They just watched it from afar, from the sidelines. Uh, Hannah Harrington, a biblical commentator, professor, a scholar, she said this about this text. She said, just as Yahweh aroused the spirit of Cyrus to order the unprecedented release of captives, he also aroused the spirit of the exiles to respond with enthusiasm and return to the land of their ancestors. Many Jews stayed in Babylon, seeing no reason to leave their birthplace and friends. Indeed, To leave home, to travel to an ancient homeland now inhabited by others uh, uh, in order to rebuild a ruined temple might easily seem like an arduous and even pointless task. But the new community is redefined not only by birth and cultural identity, but by its responsiveness to the will of God. Many of the correct lineage stayed in Babylon The implicit point here is that it was those who recognized the work of Yahweh and responded accordingly who are the true heirs of Abraham. She went on to say that that those who didn't go, they did not actually receive the promise and the blessings of God. They just like Moses saw it from a distance. And I think that many of us are tempted with this very thing to not fully dive in, to not freely offer ourselves to the kingdom of God. Why? Why are we tempted to not sacrifice? Because it's hard. Listen, 
It's because you are survivors, right? Like even if you've not been through the mud, you still live on this earth and living on this earth is hard. You get spiritually abused every single day that you wake up by a foreign ruler in a land that is not your own. And the temptation is to rather than do something hard, like build a kingdom to stay in the foreign land, to stay in Egypt where at least you have some food and just continue to survive until the end, to live with a survivor mentality. Why risk building a kingdom and sacrificing for a kingdom that you can't see? Like, like can I challenge us to something? Not even a challenge. It's actually an encouragement. Can I encourage us? To seek first the kingdom of God is truly life. It's not just a cute saying of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Like despite the fact that you have to leave the comforts of Babylon to build that kingdom, that's where life truly is. Here's why I believe we don't sacrifice for the kingdom of God. It's because we have this blindness to what we are actually building. Like, like we get to build the house of the Lord, but that house is in a kingdom that is yet to come and you cannot see or taste or touch or hear or smell it on this side of eternity. What you're building is spiritual and you often can't see it, not yet, but you will see it in the kingdom that is to come. When you sacrifice for the kingdom, that is where true investment is and you are beginning to build something that is beautiful for you and for others, but that is hard to see day by day. I was talking with an old friend of mine this week and I was reminded of a time that we used to meet in a, a coffee shop. I won't name it because it's the worst coffee shop in Austin, okay? Um, but they, back in the day, had this uh, Bitcoin machine. This is before like you could buy it on the app. This is before all this stuff. And there was one day, I didn't know what this was, right? I'm from the hood, y'all. Like I ain't trying to make no investment into some money that I can't even see, right? So he's trying to explain to me. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he went and he bought $100 worth of a Bitcoin. Now that got him like 700 and something Bitcoins or whatever. And all he had for it was this receipt. And I remember thinking, white people are strange, yo. <laughs> I'm just being real, that's what I thought, all right? Um, he ended up turning that uh, $100 into uh, like uh, $13,000 and sold it way too early. Like he sold it when it was like $8,000. Remember it went up to like 60,000 or something wild, right? Uh, serving the Lord is sort of like investing in Bitcoin in 2011. <laughs> Like you can't even see what you're investing in, right? Like he didn't even have no coins. He just had like a little receipt that he was supposed to keep and not lose, right? Um, can I tell you something though? God is so much more sure than Bitcoin, right? And listen, listen, amen. He promises y'all that whatever you surrender, it's a sacrifice. He calls it that. It is an investment sacrifice, but he promises that it will return a hundredfold. There's multiple passages. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29 is one of them. It says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, this is a familial culture. So he's saying that you're leaving the hardest things to leave or land for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What you are doing here matters for future generations as we discussed last Sunday, but it even matters for you, saints. 
You're investing in something that you can't see, but is sure to come because God is faithful to his word. Meaning when you give to the kingdom of God, there is return that will be joy for you and joy for many. And the invitation in this passage is to come and be involved. But many people rejected that, right? Look at Cyrus. He sacrificed all these things because he just felt a stirring by the Lord. How much money was being given to the Israelites here? He didn't even know God. And we have a hard time giving 100 bucks a month. Hello. It's because we forget to see with spiritual eyes exactly what it is that we're doing when we invest in spiritual things. Can you see it, saints? Can you see it genuinely? The kingdom of God that is to come. Can you feel a stirring in your spirit? Even at hard language, like we're unwilling to invest these earthly things and you might feel that conviction, but can you see past that, that feeling and see the kingdom that is to come? God is inviting us to build for him. That is part of what our lives are here on this earth. Like God has called every single individual into personal and into corporate building. Personally, there are things that God has planned out for you to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us to glorify his name. And so maybe God has called you to, to build your family and to love them or, or to do some social justice issues and, and make the world a better place or to have this generosity or to love the neighbor that God has sovereignly placed beside you. God is calling each of us individually, but he also calls each of us corporately to be a part of something that all of us can do together that is bigger than what anybody can do as individuals. And he calls us to partake in that. That is part of the heart of this series. What if the most important thing you will ever do and therefore the thing that will give you most life and the most eternal rewards is to help build the well or to go on a church plant or to go to the nations, right? Like, what would it look like to not just build your own houses, but maybe even first and foremost, the house of the Lord? And if not the well, somewhere, I'm not telling you come on in. If you've been here for more than eight months, you know that I am a big believer in the local church. So if this is not the church for you, that is totally cool. Find some church and invest in there, family. Find some place and build. They need the spirit that you have inside of them. And as you go back and corporately rebuild, you are preparing a way for the Messiah to come. They were preparing the first coming. We're preparing the final coming. And God is inviting us in. And he is worthy of all of this. Like here's the plea for this series. Let's build something beautiful here, y'all. All of us together, all of our small gifts, time by time, moment by moment, week by week, building until the whole city of God is felt tangibly amongst us and until those who do not know Christ get to meet the wild love of Christ through these efforts. Like, let's build something beautiful together. That sounds like a weird political campaign ad. I mean that junk though, y'all, right? Listen, here's the interesting thing about Cyrus here is that this dude was not lazy. Notice what Cyrus is doing in verse seven. Cyrus is bringing things out of the house of foreign gods and he's giving them back to God. We do the same things when we give to God. But Cyrus isn't lazy in this. He went into the pagan temple himself and then brought those things out. We do the same thing. 
And so let's do that here. Like when we're multiplying CGs or, or loving our kids or discipling our friends or sharing the gospel or going to the nations or giving financially, whenever we're doing that, we're doing something similar to what Cyrus did. Let's not let a pagan king outpace us, saints. When we have the true king of kings dwelling inside of us to empower us for even greater movement and obedience. Amen? Amen. Now, we could end the sermon here and be like, yeah, let's go change the world, right? Like, let's make products that bring blessing to people and and let's give our talents in in ludicrous ways and and let's serve our city and do justice, yeah. And then Wednesday comes and we feel tempted to stay in Babylon. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we could rah-rah, but that lasts for a few weeks at best. Or we could solidify this in our spirits by learning to look to the true and better king. Cyrus proclaimed in verse 1 or verse 2 that all things had been given to him. And he was right about that. He was the ruler of the whole world. But I know the ruler of the whole universe. And All things have truly been given to Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. See, as a king at that time, Cyrus would have been seen as a sort of God, as a representation, an intermediary between earth and the heavenlies. All foreign kings were seen as godlike. That is why Cyrus could walk right into another king's special place of worship and just take that gold because he conquered that king. He showed he was a more powerful God of sorts. And now Cyrus is giving these vessels back to Israel, righting the wrong of a poor authority figure who falsely used it for his own benefit. And then he puts others in charge to complete the mission that God had originally gave him. Cyrus is an unbelievable representation. In fact, at this chart that I have, I think on the next slide, what you see here is what Cyrus' actions were. It was really clear throughout chapter 1. But saints, there's a better king that we worship. You see, Jesus also went into a foreign king's temple, Satan. This earth, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, is Satan's world, his dominion, his palace. He's the God of this world. This is Satan's kingdom. Ephesians 2.2 would tell us that. All throughout the scriptures, we see this. He is the God that dwells here, but not really. What he does is he dwells in false and in profane ways, just like Nebuchadnezzar had done over Israel. And so Jesus walks right into this false temple, even into hell itself, to overthrow the work of this false god. And yet, even though Jesus is sinless and a perfect king, Jesus would eventually die as if he was a foreign king, as if he was a false king. Jesus would die as if he was someone who could not overthrow death. Why? Because that's what you and I deserve. This invitation to come and build the kingdom of God is an unworthy invitation, saints of Christ. What we deserve is death. We're survivors, remember? Like if we just happen to kind of make it through, that is enough grace for the day. But Jesus comes and he takes our place. He dies as if he was the conquered Babylonian king. But he didn't stay dead. 
He defeated death by death, conquering the grave by the grave, using the very power that that false king defeated him with and taking that power and turning it back up over that false god, Satan and death himself. And he began to defeat him with it, taking the keys of death and Hades. And now Jesus rules and reigns. And now all authority has been given to him and all authority has been given to us to imitate him. You are now the vessels of God. How wild is that? 2 Timothy 2.2 calls us that very thing, the vessels of God. And just like Cyrus made the treasurer, the person who completed the mission, God now makes us treasurers and puts us in charge to complete his mission. You've been invited into something unbelievable. And so we don't need to rah-rah our own effort. We need to keep our eyes on the true king who conquered, knowing that as we stay attached, then we will immediately feel our spirits being stirred. We will act like Cyrus and respond to this prompting. And we will actually have the true authority from God himself to push back darkness on this earth. Life is now at work in our spirit. As we partner with the Holy Spirit, we can truly make a difference for the kingdom to come. We can build more than some houses in Babylon, y'all. That's not what I want to be my legacy at the end of my life. He built great houses in Babylon. Like we can build mansions in the kingdom for us and for many others to enjoy. And so what's our application for today? I have three really quick application points and I wanna pray for this. Uh, The first one is that in every single sermon in this series, we actually want to give you a prayer point and invite you to pray over yourself and over our church this week. No rebuilding effort happens without the prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit responding to that prayer. And so the prayer point for this week is really, really simple. Pray for restoration and for God to use you to restore. Pray for restoration in your life. Don't be afraid to do that. God promises he'll do that all throughout the scriptures. And then pray for God to use you as well to bring restoration for others. Say simple prayers, right? Lord, you are the God of restoration. Stir our hearts, move our spirits for the things of you. We'll give you a different prayer point each week. I would really invite you to pray into these, right? Um, Secondly, man, if your spirit is stirred, like get involved. Like if you're not already giving, serving, loving, like, like be a part of something bigger, like Like shameless plug, VBS is coming up soon. We need a few more volunteers. The thing I love about VBS is that the kids are acting as missionaries going into different nations to learn about that nation to hopefully stir their hearts for the nations one day. So look, when you go serve and you get thrown up on by a kid, it's hard to remember you're building the kingdom, right? But what if, what if through that service, you're not gonna see this reward for 20 years, y'all. They can't go to the nations because they're six. But 20 years from now, what if they remember this little moment where God planted a seed in their heart and allowed that seed to grow and they desire to go to the nations? You may not even realize that you were one of the main catalysts of it, but you got to keep your eyes on eternal things. That's how we should be thinking about things. And so, so, so serve there, somewhere else, whatever. Like, like learn and grow so that you can better give to others. That is a good thing as well. In uh, the podcast that we just released that Mary and I are doing, like one of the things we talked about is being able to personally grow and to know so that you can help others. So invest in your own spiritual growth so that others can benefit from you, y'all. Like dive into that. Uh, uh, Give to our church family. Another shameless plug, like 
our giving has been down since moving to the east side, though we've grown. And I don't know if it's like fear or, or, or we lost some people, or, but I do know that we could just do more if we had more. Now, listen, if you're like, that sounds strange. If you're new to church, go back to our generous worship series and see what our heart is around giving. I'm not telling you to give more because we need it or because God needs it. He doesn't. I'm telling you to give more because your heart needs it. When you give, you're remembering that you're building something better than Babylon. And so when you give your time, when you give your treasure, when you give your talents, you're reminding yourself of this invitation of the spirit to build a better kingdom. Whatever it is, y'all, I know that if a foreign king can be part of God's redemptive plan, then a redeemed saint sure enough can be a part of it. Do you remember where you are going? And do you rejoice at that work? I want to end with this really random quote, y'all. Really random. Don't put it up on the screen yet. No, 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 no. Take it off. <laughs> I got to explain it because it's so random. <laughs> uh, this Sunday, we had a, a guest worship team help lead our Sunday uh, worship night, our summer worship night. And uh, this individual is from another church, uh, Yusuf in Austin, they, they know, and he did a really great job of leading us. But afterwards, he came to Austin, and this guy's been in ministry for some time. And you know, it ain't like there was thousands of people here, like there's 150 or so people that were present. And after he was leading, he came up to Austin, and he said this, now the quote. He said, this is a hungry church. I can feel it and see it. God is preparing a way for this church to be a radical impact for the kingdom. They are doing and are going to do transformative things here. They are going to make a mark in history. May this be true of the well for the glory of God alone. For he is worthy. Amen. I love you guys tremendously. Let's pray together even towards this end. Holy Father. You are beautiful and you are good. God, I want to pray really specific things over this church family this morning. God, when I pray that you would, for all of us who believe in you, that you would use us. Show us, even right now as we're praying, show us what you would call us into in this next season of our life. Holy Spirit, I believe that you speak. I believe the promises like Ephesians 2.10, you prepared a work for everyone who loves you. And so even right now, God, whether that seems really small or whether that seems big and almost impossible, I pray that you would begin to speak to those of us who know and who love you and that you would begin to show us what you're calling us into. Spirit, that we would hear you now as I'm praying, that we would hear you at the communion table, that we would hear you in worship, that we would hear you on Wednesday this week when we're tempted to build Babylon. Spirit, I ask that you would speak to us. God, I pray for everyone in this room who does not know you, who maybe they're, they're not sure, am I, am I a follower of God? Am I, am I building this kingdom or the kingdom of the world? I want you to know, friends, that God is inviting you to exit a kingdom that will indeed crumble and to enter into a kingdom that is his. To come into the household of God. 
to know him and to love him, to feel his presence, to recognize his goodness, to have value in the things that you are doing that extend past this life, to be redeemed out of our shame or sin or brokenness. God is inviting us in. Today, you can know the king of the universe. If you place your faith in him, if you place your trust, if you say, God, I believe you, I wanna follow you. You may not even know why you feel this stirring in your spirit to align yourself to this kingdom. You may have had no thoughts of any of this before this time this morning, but God may be inviting you in. Take that invitation, friend. Enter into the kingdom of God. God, I pray for all of us who are doing good who are sacrificing, who are giving, who, who you are calling us to more, I believe, but also are giving a lot. God, I know that Satan's biggest lie to those who are making a difference is that you are not doing enough and you are not good enough. And I pray that if that is the posture of our hearts, that we would look to you, Jesus, and that we would hear truth spoken over us, I pray that these saints would hear that you are well pleased with them. God, thank you for inviting us in. Help us to serve and honor you until you return. We pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you want more information about us or how to get further connected, please visit our website, thewellaustin.com.